Welcome to Becoming Church, the podcast where we discuss how the message and movement of Jesus is not just about becoming Christians, but about becoming the church. I'm your host, Kristen Mockler-Young, and I'm so glad you are joining the conversation. Hey guys, welcome back to Becoming Church. I'm here with Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes, co-author of The Racewise Family. Michelle, thanks for being here. Hey, Kristen, good to be here. I, you're not getting graded, but if you were, you get an A plus on pronouncing <laughs> my whole name. That was awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. And thank you. Listen, the podcast episode can only go down from here. I'm on- <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> We'll just go more up. There'll be more pluses. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm really glad that you're here. And I have to tell you before, I want you to get into the book and we're going to break it down a little bit, but I think that I read the entire book within a week. Like I got it on the day that it released. Um, and I finished it within a week because for me, I couldn't put it down. I think because of how timely it was, um, it, it just like, it was days after, you know, two targeted racial shootings in Buffalo and at that church in California. And I think the reason that I just stayed so in the book, because it was like a reminder of God's goodness and his mm-hmm. presence, like at just the right timing. And it just felt like he was saying like, I'm here, I'm still in this with you. And so just thank you to you and Helen, um, for putting the words out. I mean, nobody could have ever mm-hmm. expected you know, the timing of it. Um, now if only we can get other people to listen to you guys (laughs) to read that book, it'd be amazing. The world would be a much, much better place. So for people that haven't read it yet, tell us a little bit, um, about the book. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I got to write this book with my good friend, Helen Lee, uh, and it's, it's called the race wise family. And, you know, there's so many, joys in being able to write this book and and co-author together. One is just the fact that I'm second generation Indian American. uh, Helen is second generation Korean American. So you have two Asian American Christian women writing a book on, you know, how to, how the family, how the Christian family is supposed to lead their children into more race-wise conversations, Uh, you know, and you can maybe, you know, if you're listening to this and, and, turning around and looking at your bookshelf, you know, kind of ask yourself, how many books do you have on your bookshelf by Asian American Christian women, let alone on this topic of race? And so yeah. uh, I, I'm going to guess it's very little. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, and so I think there's, there's power in writing and, you know, power and beauty in writing this book, particularly f- from two Asian American uh, lenses to talk about the issue of race in America, to talk about the racial brokenness in our society, and to make sure that the realities of Asian Americans, uh, as well as Latinos uh, and other uh, marginalized groups are held side by side to what people often think is like a black white issue, Uh, you know, so just more diversity in that in that perspective, but then also just um, part of the reason why we wanted to write this book together is because we were seeing in this cultural moment, uh, parents by and large are still very fearful to talk about race. Uh, and, and, you know, what we're trying to encourage Christian parents is to say, Hey, look, your kids are going to be formed one way or another, like just sheltering your kids from the realities of the world, particularly Gen Z, like that's not even an option. Like, 
if if you're not talking to your kids about this, you can bet that they're talking to somebody else or just being formed by social media uh, or by their teachers or, you know, and, and some could be very good influences. Maybe it's church, maybe it's a uh, Christian school. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to paint this like narrative of like fear outside of the, the home either. But I think what we're trying to say is that parents can't not weigh in, that, that yeah. we have a, a special calling to uh, encourage postures in our children to to see the world around them, the racial brokenness around them, and to want to seek God's heart in those matters. And so uh, our, our book is hopefully, you know, it's a mix of theology and very simple practical steps to help and empower parents to do that. Yeah. And I will say it, I know it's geared toward parents, um, but as I was reading, I just thought this is such a I don't want to use the word basic because that makes it sound (laughs) basic, but like simple, like in the best way, it was so simple. And I thought, I love that it's geared toward parents because children need simple, right? But also people that don't have kids also, I think would benefit even from just (laughs) the self-assessment and asking themselves these questions, you know, Um, a few episodes back on the podcast, we, uh, a mutual friend, Dr. Lucretia Berry and I actually talked about this as well. And the idea that not only can we not talk to our kids out of fear, but there's also a sense of privilege in that, especially for us white majority parents to just assume that it can wait. They don't need to know yet. Like that's a privilege in and of itself that a lot of families in our country can't do. Yes. Yes. I think we have to acknowledge first off that black, brown, and white parents, we have different starting points in these conversations. I think for white Mm. parents, oftentimes uh, their greatest fear is offending somebody or having their children offend somebody. Like that's the worst that could happen in these conversations. And I think for black and brown parents, on the other hand, uh, their worst fear isn't offending someone. It's either themselves or their children being uh, attacked, uh, their life being in jeopardy, right? Um, You know, not having their father come home at night. Uh, And so I think that that's a big uh, difference in starting point. And I think one of the questions that white parents often ask me is like, how do we dive into these topics without like making it too overwhelming and too heavy. And I'm like, well, I think that's the wrong question because for black Mm. and brown folks for, you know, I'm Indian American, my husband's Mexican American for our children that are multiracial Indian Mexican uh, American. We don't have that uh, privilege, right? Like this is an everyday reality for us to be sitting in the heaviness, to see what's happening to our communities, to be, mindful of how we're operating in the world for how we might be recipients of anti-Asian racism or fill in the blank. And so it's more like, it's asking the wrong question. How can we stay above the fray, but how can we actually sit more into like confront this heaviness and then say, okay, what does God want me to do in this heaviness? Yeah. Well, like you said, the kids are going to hear it anyway. They're going to find out. And one of the things that really stuck out to me when you guys, you have a whole, so the book is broken into postures. There's Mm -hmm. 10 of them, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of them, again, so timely as I was reading, it was about how to respond to current events. And you guys said that the message is not only in what is taught, but in who is bringing it. And I was like, well, that could be applied to hundreds (laughs) of things and still be true every time. And so 
What does that mean for like majority culture parents who haven't lived those experiences, but we want to help? Like, how can we help without centering ourselves or without being offensive? Like for those people that do want to help, because I know one of the points was to listen, but like, what can we do? I think that's what so many people are saying. What can I actually do? Yes. Yes. Well, I, I, I think, uh, a couple of things, one, it's helpful to, to think through like, what, what is the chronology? What's sort of like the end goal that we're, uh, moving towards. Right. And I think we have to think in terms of proximity, proximity is what leads to awareness and awareness mm-hmm. is what should lead to action. Right. And Absolutely. so, um, oftentimes when we get within our own monocultural bubbles, we don't even know what's happening outside of our communities, right? Which is why there's so many studies and statistics out there about how even though, uh, for example, anti-Asian racism is skyrocketing because of the pandemic, there's a large contingent of white Americans that have no idea that this exists. Uh, and on top of that, actually believe that that there are no... Um, sort of uh, antagonisms or, or racism against Asians in our country. And I think part of that is just because we're not listening to the same news news feeds. We're not listening to the same thought leaders. Um, I think a lot of, and I'll say specifically white evangelical Christians, they're not used to sitting under the teaching of Asian American Christian leaders, right? So you don't know. Yeah. You don't know when stuff hits the fans for, for the Asian American community. And so I think a, a simple starting point is to ask who are you who are you listening to? You know, who are you in proximity to? Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily a, a wrong thing in of itself to attend a, a majority white church. Uh, but either in the books you're reading or on uh, the people you're following on social media or in your friend group, if, if you don't have any Black friends, Asian friends, Latino friends, how in the world are you going to know what's happening in those communities in order to respond appropriately? Um, and then, of course, there's the whole issue of, you know, own voice, you know, hashtag own voice. There's the, the issue of narrative justice about Um, taking the microphone away from the dominant voice and putting it into the hands of the voices at the margins and saying, okay, you tell us what's happening in these Mm -hmm. contexts through your own lens and story, right? And so um, this is why, for example, if churches want to have a a webinar, a, a workshop, a conference on immigration, great, we should be having those conversations. But are the keynotes and the panelists, are they immigrants themselves or are they a bunch of white pastors right? Right. talking about uh, what they think talk- it's actually about exactly you want yeah. to have a conversation on immigration you get the immigrants at the table you want to talk about how to address anti-asian hate you get the asians to the table you know and so on and, and so forth so um I, I, and last thing that i'll say is when we're thinking about our own children and activism and and current events um like right now the month of may how i mean the number of shootings just keeps coming in and it just keeps rising. And it's like, parents are asking, how do we even engage in this topic with our children? And I like to say three steps, awareness, activism, advocacy. First, you have to get your children to become aware that these things are happening in the world. If they're really young, no, you don't want to like expose them to all the images and, 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 and the, and the rest. But like, I have a seven-year-old, I have a three-year-old. And when the shootings took place in Dallas and Laguna Woods and Buffalo uh, and, and, and then in Tulsa uh, and, and, and elsewhere, I, you know, we have conversations and tell them, hey, something really horrible, something really bad happened today. You know, this, this man walked into this 
supermarket or into this church and killed, shot and killed these people. Um, We tell them that because we want to say, this is wrong. This is a sin. And and so as Christian parents, we have to name sin. Racism is a sin. Um, if they're a little bit older, then start talking about activism. What, how should we respond? What, what could we do to help, you know, whether it's prayer or whether it's, uh, in the situation with Uvalde, you know, can we donate blood, you know, can we, um, support a GoFundMe, these sorts of, you know, some of the families with, um, funeral costs and whatnot. If you're high school or college age kids talk about advocacy, who are the higher ups that we should be lifting our voices to to break the cycles um, that is perpetuating violence in our country can we call our senator can we call our governor do that with your kid to model this is how you respond in prayer in mourning and then uh in in sort of uh active steps if you will and i think if you do that over and over again with your kids that that becomes a habit right and 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 even for my seven-year-old he knows (laughs) he's like we got to pray. And, 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 you know, are, are, are we doing a protest? Like, who are we going to call? Right. Like that's, that's in his vocabulary because yeah. he sees us model that over and again. Yeah. When I love that you in the, in the book, you have a PDF, like a guide. Um, I did an audible, so I had to like download that separately. Oh, I nice. assume it's in the back <laughs> of the book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, but you have it actually broken down by age and you've got from toddlers to teenagers, not only prayers to pray and questions to ask and ways to engage them, but even media so that, I mean, gosh, I would say even in a time when there's not racism happening, but that's never, um, (laughs) but I know that some parents might feel another way to ease in. And so just thank you for those resources that you guys have listed. I mean, yeah. I've seen lists before, but by age is, is brilliant because a toddler and a teenager, obviously you're not going to learn. You have to have age appropriate conversations and engagement with this issue for sure. Yeah. And we, I'll tell you, my husband and I just experienced this for the first time, um, after the school shooting and we decided that we were going to tell our kids, we have two little girls that are eight and six Mm. and we'd never sat them down before and talked to them about um, a school shooting specifically. And it was hard and it was hard and it was heartbreaking and they cried and we prayed. Um, but also I don't regret it for a second. Number one, because I want to start having these conversations. I want to make sure we are raising our kids, you know, to be race wise, but also it gave them the chance to ask questions that I knew I would give them the answers to. Again, back to your point of who's giving them the message. My oldest has generalized anxiety. And I'm like, if she hears about this from a kid at school, yeah, her day, she's going to probably have a panic attack thinking yeah. it's going to happen at any second. And so I guess I just want to encourage parents, like it's hard, but you can do it. And it's actually a better way to love your kids because you're creating the safe environment, you know, to have these conversations where they know that it's safe. Amen. Amen. I think that's, that's how we move from fear-based approaches to race to kingdom build or kingdom minded approaches to race. And I think for so long, it's just been this, um, this list of like, here's what not to do. Like, here's what conversations to avoid. Don't say this, don't weigh into that. Don't talk to this person about that issue. Uh, and that's kind of it. Like we've just, that's how I was raised, you know, growing up was, was to be taught what not to do. Uh, uh-huh. but I was never, 
I, I never felt, and, and no shade on my parents. I just, I don't think they were equipped. They were trained right. either. You know, we weren't taught. Here's how to have a positive engagement in these heavy things. Here's how to have a joy-filled approach and to say, I'm going to weigh in to help my actions and my words are part of helping build the kingdom of God in this mm. issue. Right. And, and to your point, we can, we can help guide our children with, with prayer and with scripture and asking them open-ended questions of how they're feeling. Um, and then to reiterate and remind them, God's still sovereign. Like we have, we don't know why this happened. We know this breaks yeah. God's heart, but he is yeah. still sovereign. He is still in control and he is, his justice is coming, you know, and, and yeah. to, for children, our children to, to continue to find and place hope in God and trust in God in the midst of these hard things is really what we, that's the foundation that we're wanting to build here. Yeah. I oh, mean, it's just, it's so good. I'm like, I'm going to go back and re-listen to all of this again. And just, you know, it's, it's affirmation and confirmation and encouragement. Amen. <laughs> uh, okay. So in, I'm going to jump around through the pastors, but in, um, pastor nine was journeying toward racial healing. Mm-hmm. And so since we're kind of talking, you know, in, about what parents can do and what people can do in that section, you, you guys listed out like practicals and even prayers for white people, for people of color. And in that moment, I thought, I bet they're going to get pushback for this. Mm. Have you gotten, because you, because you didn't just do, here's like one prayer for all people for one prayer for all humanity, which I would say we have a lot of prayers (laughs) (laughs) to all people. I thought it was beautiful the way that it was broken up. But what would you say to someone who says that you're being divisive, maybe by addressing individual people or cultural groups? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I We actually haven't had any pushback on that. Praise God. Uh, our intention with chapter nine, what like our whole book is written for black, brown and white parents together. Like this is a journey. It's an invitation for all of us to journey together. But we did want to make space for black and brown parents who have experienced, I mean, even my own life, like having children was like my own reckoning to figure out my own racial trauma. I was like, I need to figure this out. Like I need to go through my own healing journey so I can properly care for my kids and whatever they're going to go through in the world. Uh, And so we wanted to make space for that, to talk about what resilience is, um, how to step away from the news and the world and just find hope and healing in God. But we wanted white parents and white readers to still read that chapter, uh, kind of like sit at this table and listen in so that you know what we're going through. Uh, And you're, you're welcome in this space, but but come in as a listener uh, and, and yes, be part of our, our, our journeys of healings too. You know Um, I think, I I do think to your point, there is this idea that just talking about race and talking about racial pain in and of itself is divisive. I think that's why so many Christian families, so many uh, churches, I think that lean conservative in particular, don't even want to bring up the topic of race because they don't want to be divisive. And mm-hmm. I say, well, that's not what we see in scripture, <laughs> like Jesus and the apostle Paul and in the books of the Bible over and over again, they're talking about not avoiding race, but how can we eliminate the bear, the ethnic and racial barriers to unity with one another? And, I, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people, they go to Galatians chapter three, you know, verses 26 through 29, that says, 
Um, now there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, you know, slave or free. We're all yeah. one in Christ Jesus. And they go to passages like that to say, see, like issues of race and culture should not be an issue. Like we're just one in Christ. Like our only identity that we should care about is our spiritual identity. To which I say, well, let's let's unpack that a little bit more. That second phrasing, there's neither male nor female. Are, are you saying that we, once we believe in Jesus, we should no longer, that we are asexual beings, right? right. Like that, that our gender no longer matters. And people will be like, well, no, I don't mean that. So if, if we're not trying to become asexual, then why would we use Galatians 3 to become acultural, if you will, right? Mm, yeah. So clearly, I think the Apostle Paul is, he has a different message in mind. And, and, and what he's saying is that not that when we be when we are united in Christ, that our cultural and our, our gendered and our socioeconomic identities uh, should be eliminated, but rather that those should no longer become uh, barriers to each other um, to, and, and to our to our, our unity. And so, I think we have to. The message for the 21st century American church is: we need to stare racism in the face. We need to stare our racial pains and problems in the face. Address them within the church. The way Paul does in almost every letter that he writes right. uh, to the first century uh, church and say, we need to figure out how to uh, embrace these differences and keep them from dividing us. But it's not about avoiding the issue and pretending it doesn't exist. That's not yeah. what we see in scripture. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I think a lot of times it's an excuse for, I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of times I think it's an excuse for people to just go, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. And so I have been guilty of this. Um, I have really done a lot of work. I obviously, so I still have work to do. I will never fully understand what it's like to be in the minority because I am a white woman, you know, I mean, I understand the female part of it. Um, but I remember like, I would just grab a phrase and I think this is, you know, quote unquote, being divisive can sometimes be just used as an excuse as one of those phrases where people are like, I'm uncomfortable and I don't know what to do. And so I'm just going to grab onto like, don't be divisive, or I'm going to grab this phrase and I'm just grabbing stuff out of the air of like, um, I don't see color. Like, I think mm -hmm. people sometimes say these things because they don't know what to say. Yeah. And so we just need to yeah. give them the tools like this book so that we can, you know, help them to better understand what actually to do. Amen. Um, since you went to the scripture, I know one of your postures was talking about understanding like a biblical view of racism and that I think Christians especially maybe struggle with what it is, what to do. Um, talk to me about how, how we knowingly or unknowingly support systems of racism, maybe like specifically within the church. Mm, man, that's <laughs> like, <laughs> that could be a five hour conversation <laughs> and you've got 90 seconds. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> Well, I think there's, there's layers and there's levels and I, you know, I don't want to lump all churches into the same pot, so to speak, because we're all in different uh, stages of our, our journey. But I think, like you were saying, I think there's some people that feel that somehow the civil rights era in the 60s and 70s like solved racism therefore it doesn't exist anymore in this country and then i think to your point you know so talking about it is just divisive because we should focus on the gospel uh and so we have this very 
I think for churches in that uh, situation, we have a very anemic understanding of what the gospel and what the good news is in, in the first place. And I think somehow we've come to this very individualistic, pietistic understanding of faith that it's, it's all about a certain set of dogmas, uh, theological doctrines that you need to ascribe mm -hmm. to, as well as, of course, believing in Jesus and having Jesus in your heart. And that's it. Like, that's the Christian life. As long as you, you know, believe that, you know, Jesus is God and in the Trinity uh, and that Jesus, you know, died for your sins and so on and so forth, then you're good. And if people believe in that, uh, then the Holy Spirit will work in your heart and eliminate racism. But the whole problem with that notion of thinking in the first place is that throughout human history, it's been Christians, followers yeah. of Jesus that have perpetuated racism in the first place. And so um, believing in Jesus in of itself is not the cure for racism. We have to talk about the fact that racism is sin. We have to yeah. call it out. We have to call it out from the pulpit. We have pastors need to be theologically trained in seminary mm -hmm. to to know how to exegetically address racism throughout passages in scripture because if congregants are not hearing racism called out from the pulpit week in and week out they're going to be spiritually formed to think oh the bible doesn't have that much to say about this issue therefore it's not an important part of my life uh and if the discipleship processes Monday through Saturday in the church never address racism or, or, or have any sort of race conscious based discipleship. Once again, they're going to think, oh, issues of race and the topic of racism isn't a central or this shouldn't be a central part of my my you know weekly life. And so uh, I, I can say so much more, but I think we have to start there. We have to go back to scripture, reclaim a more robust theology of race, which is why you need to read you know, books like A Theology of Race by, um, you know, IVP book or, or Issa McCulley's uh, Re Reading While Black or our book, yeah. you know, we kind of trace the theology of race in, in the race-wise family so that you can first understand that scripture talks about this, that God's heart is for all peoples, that he hates racism. Racism is yeah. a sin. It's an abomination. There, there is no two sides of the debate to racism. It's not like, oh, well, here's its merits and here's its cons. Like there's no two sides. Like right. it's a sin. That's it. And we have to call it out. Um, and if we can get people to begin there and understand the biblical basis, God's heart in this, um, I think we will have a more solid foundation to then move towards talking about justice and you know things like reparations and and all the other conversations that come from there but if the biblical foundations aren't built um we're gonna have a hard time moving forward yeah and it, it, even going back to talking to our kids earlier like you were saying your parents you know were like don't do this and whatever i think what you're talking about is it's it's very different. It's a lifestyle. It's, this is how we yeah. live. If yes. we are supposed to be modeling Jesus, this is how Jesus looked. This is the heart of God. So it's not, um, don't do this, a list of rules, yeah. which I think a lot of us grew up with again. Yeah. No, not because of our parents or the church. I mean, half the time, I think it's just because of how I received it regardless of what they <laughs> said, you know, but I think just moving away from that idea of don't say this, don't do that. That feels like rules to a kid. It is, it's the modeling, it's the bringing them along and weaving it into conversations that maybe we don't even think are about race or racism mm -hmm. and purposely intentionally putting it in there to show our kids, Hey, yeah. this is part of 
everyday life. Yes. Yes. Talk I mean, about, we, we go, oh, go to, I mean, just real quickly. I mean, we go to passages like numbers 13 in scripture, right? Where Miriam is upset about Moses marrying Zipporah. Uh, oftentimes we don't think about what's going on there, but Zipporah is like a black woman, right? And yeah. Miriam is angry and God punishes her for her anger with this white leprosy. He's like, oh, like you're upset that she's not white enough. I'm going to like curse you with a white disease. (laughs) Are you white enough now? Are you white enough now? Right. And then Miriam repents or, or, uh, the disciples with Jesus getting so upset with the Samaritans that they're like, can we just rain fire down and like destroy these people? And and Jesus is like, no, (laughs) we're not going to like, we're not going to destroy how we do things here. People of other cultures. Right. And like the more that, uh, you know, when, for, so for me, my challenge is, what, what I challenge myself to is to know these stories in scripture mm. so that when there's issues of race happening in the world and, and I'm asking, my kids are asking, what does the Bible say about this? I can go to that story and I can say, look, this happened in scripture and here's the lesson that we should learn from that for today. Uh, and so one of the things that we can challenge ourselves as race-wise parents is when we're trying to teach our children, lead with scripture. Instead of just your own gut reaction, your knee-jerk reaction, your emotional, you know, because oftentimes we're angry or we're fearful, like don't lead with that. Go to God's word, see what he has to say, and then offer that to your children. Offer these stories or something from the epistles. Um, And that requires study and research on our part as parents, you know, we have to do the work. And so it's, it's a challenge, but I think it's also an encouragement because when we're speaking the words of scripture, we know it's not our words, but God's words that we're presenting to our kids. And ultimately someday my kids are going to grow up and leave the house. I hate thinking about that, but Mm -hmm. they will. And there's going to be a day where I can no longer be guiding them every second of the day in terms of how to navigate issues of race. But if if I know that my son or my daughter is going to go off to college or, you know, go off into the world, get married, have their own family. And they know that whatever is happening in the world to turn to prayer and to turn to God's word, I, I know they're, they're, they're going to be okay, that they're going to be a force for good. And they're going to be kingdom minded, uh, wherever they are. I think sometimes for parents, do we make it too hard on ourselves? We're like, but I don't know. And so I can't teach them. And I think it's okay to learn together. Yes, like yes. again, back to the, the, all of the resources that you guys put of movies and um, books and TV shows and things that you can watch together. I also think though, it's, it's not that hard. Like there are a lot, it's not that hard. There are a lot of uh, anti-racism books out there. Yes. And more and more. And there are a lot of them who are written by Christians or from a Christian perspective. And so I don't have time to read. And if I'm going to read, it's at bed and I fall asleep immediately. (laughs) That's why I love Audible because I'm like, I have to drive to work. I got to wash dishes. I'm doing laundry. I got to drive home from work. I mean, I am getting ready, you know, doing hair and makeup in the morning. I am basically, if I'm by myself, I am listening to a book. And so it is so easy to just you can even get them from the library. I mean, you don't have to spend any money, but there is a way to start to think about what we think. And I mean, man, one of your postures, um, 
was about assessing our biases. Mm. And I was just like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) The whole time I was reading it (laughs) because it's such a necessary thing. I mean, you even started the, our conversation saying like, do you have any books by people like me on your bookshelf? (laughs) That's a fantastic starting place. Do you want to talk about assessing our biases? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just even piggyback. Well, two things. One, and this might be just controversial, Kristen, um, but but we, we have more time than we realize to, to your last point. Like if we have enough time to like binge watch the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial, right. Or our favorite TV show that we, you know, can watch for like six hours in one sitting, we have enough time to read yes. the book or listen yes. to it on audible or, or, or whatnot. We have the time. It's just about, do we have the commitment and the discipline to, to right. use our time for, for that? Yeah. Uh, but in terms of your question about biases, um, I, yeah, I want to start there because one of the perhaps unexpected consequences of the last two years is that Mm -hmm. people have started wanting to grow in their racial consciousness. And that's a good thing. Uh, Christians that I talked to pre 2020 that used to tell me, you know, Michelle, you're making too big a deal about issues of race. Like as a Christian, you shouldn't talk about race this much. Something happened with the murder of George Floyd, March 25th, 2020. And then all of us, and then the protests that raged across our country for that entire summer. And I think God did work in a lot of Christians' hearts. And a lot of people came to realize, oh, wow, we do actually have a race problem in our country. And I need to learn, I need to care about this. And so you know, people started buying all the books and uh, Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge and Jamar Tisby's Color Compromise became bestsellers and they should be bestsellers. I'm so glad that happened. And so I think all of a sudden people thought, okay, now I have all this knowledge, uh, either check, like I, I figured this out now, or I think part of it, another unintended consequence is that people began to see race as a black white issue. And Mm. so the way in which they decided that they should show up, the way in which they decided they should become allies, the way they should show solidarity is with the Black community. And I want to be the first to say that is so important uh, because people have not been allies to the Black community. And so that's huge. And we need more of that and more solidarity. Um, But then Things like March 16th, 2021 happened in which uh, a white man shot and killed six Asian women, right? And then people like myself started raising our voice to talk about these murders. And almost as soon as that happened, there was a lot of pushback. There was there was pushback from some white Christians saying uh, that I was exaggerating the issue, that attacks against Asian Americans are are isolated issues or that... um, you know, it's not as big of a deal as I'm making it out to be. And I'm like, I, I don't understand how you cannot make enough of a big deal about people being murdered. Right. <laughs> like, I, right. I, don't, I don't understand. Uh, but then even from fellow uh, people of color, fellow Christians of color, you know, black and brown saying, hey, you're taking up too much space for the Asian American community. And I think we have just been wrongfully formed when it comes to um, the issue of race, that the only minority we should care about are uh, Black folks and the Black community. And so this is a, I'm walking a little bit on eggshells, even stepping into this, because I know how complicated this is. But what I've learned 
as an Asian American is uh, I, I am committed to continuing to stand up for API lives and dignity, but at the same time, because there is such a low tolerance for grief and pain uh, when it comes to Asian, Asian issues, I'm very mindful of stepping into these conversations with fellow black and brown folks to say, hey, I, I see your hurt. Like yeah. I, I see the pain in your community. Uh, we're all operating from places of hurt <laughs> right now. Yeah. We're all hurting. Things are bad for all of our communities. And so um, to be mindful to say, I'm sorry for what is happening in your community. And, and I'm standing with you. I care. Uh, I'm here to help. Let me know how I can help and be in solidarity. Uh, and then at the same time, I say, look, I'm hurting too, right? And right. I, I think we need to find a way and figure out a way to say that Asian lives matter just as much as Black lives do and Latino lives and Native American lives. I need you to grieve with me as well. Yeah. Um, and so I think how this plays out is that for, for churches, for pastors, like, yes, keep calling out anti-Black racism from the pulpit. And, and, and a lot of pastors have done that really well, but they haven't necessarily called out anti-Asian racism, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they might mention the shooting in Buffalo from the pulpit, but did they mention the shooting from Laguna Woods or, right. uh, you know, when other Asians have been attacked? Uh, so we need to become more holistic in our approach to, 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 to challenging racism. Uh, and then I think second is just making space for each other's grief as, as, as fellow families of color, as fellow parents of color, to not like buy into this mentality of scarcity that like, if I speak up for somebody else that like, I'm going to lose attention or resources for myself. Yeah. Um, because since we all feel like we're drowning, it's hard to like, feel like we can care for someone else right. who's drowning. Um, but I think, you know, even for myself as an Asian American, Indian American, it would be wrong for me to not train and equip my children to what's happening in the black community or the Latino community or the native American community for the, for black families, it would, it would be a miss if they never addressed immigrants at the border with their kids yeah. for Latinos, Latino families, it would be a miss to never address Asian issues with their kids. And so we, we need to delve into race and we need to figure out ways to do it holistically. Yeah. It almost seems like once you kind of get that this is about people, yes. right. And like seeing people and humanity, I think that's the, the push or the step that allows people to take it from a black, white issue to seeing racism in whatever culture, whatever people group is being targeted, which is yes. all of them in different yes. places, you know? Um, but it's that, again, I guess it's moving it from an issue from, Hey, here's this black, white issue that I'm trying to like stand behind or rally to you no know, people are a humanity. And when we can see that and love them yes. as one humanity, well, then it's one of those to me, things that once you see it, you can't unsee it in a good way. Yes. yes. You know? Amen. And I think this is why, uh, we do have to start with, um, culture with cultural stories, cultural narratives, cultural identities, uh, so that we can understand that uh, each person is unique, like no one is a monolith. Uh, yes, our stories of joy and our stories of pain are in some ways unique to ourselves, right? And so yeah. the more we can see each person as a unique individual, the more we can be like, okay, what are you going through? How can I care for you as opposed to like saying, well, 
this one time I helped the Asian community. Like it's like, <laughs> like we're just and, and one every blob. single person in the world who's Asian <laughs> felt that. Yes, exactly. I think we need to kind of also think more locally and think more individually yeah. um, as, uh, you know, balance the local and the national, but, but who are the people in my life? How can I care for them? And in, in a way that's not like packaged, like pre-formulated, but yeah. like that actually cares for them as individuals. Yeah. Michelle, let me ask you one more question. Um, Cause you did mention a little bit of people, you know, when you were using your voice, some of the pushback that you received, I think that and I'm not excusing it, but I think that a lot of white people that I have talked to are like, number one, I don't know how, so we're equipping them. But I also think that there's a fear there of going, Mm. if I start to stand up for people, if I start to talk about this, I am going to get pushed back because my family or my community or my friends or whoever aren't there yet either. So Mm. what would you say to someone maybe to encourage them like to take that brave step or what do they do if they do receive criticism? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say this, uh, this, I guess this is tough love, Kristen, but the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely. And loving our neighbor should be costly. Like if it never costs you anything to love your neighbor, how, how well, how full are you actually showing love, right? If it never requires much of you. And so I think learning to, to, to show up, to stand up for your neighbor, to care for them, like uh, the parable of the Samaritan, uh, right, where, where this man gives of his time, his resources, uh, and, and more to yeah. care for a man of another culture that he doesn't even know, uh, you know, at great cost to himself. And I even think about Jesus dying on the cross the, the, the great weight of sin that was supposed to be on our shoulders, he shielded us, shielded us from with his very body, right? Like I even think about why we need to have bystander training because so often we've all seen the viral videos, right? Of somebody being beaten up at the subway uh, station or, or whatnot. And everyone else is just watching. We're just watching these things unfold. And it just makes my blood curl. Like, why isn't anybody just running to care for this person because we, we, we're, we're terrified of what the cost will be to us. And so I think we have to figure out how do we use our own bodies, our physical bodies, like Jesus did to shield others from, you know, the full weight of of, of evil and and darkness. Um, And how do we begin to step into these waters of race and racial conversations and be willing to suffer the cost potentially with friends potentially with our reputation if we're if we're leaders if we're pastors of if we're directors of organizations potentially with donor um, yeah, right. losses and things like that but right that is the true cost and the true requirement to love our neighbor uh, the way that Jesus has called us to. So it's, it's a worthy calling. Uh, and, and so I actually, I, you know, don't be afraid to experience that uh, and to model to others why, why these costs are, are, are necessary. Yeah. Well, and I'll say too, an, again, another plug for reading your book, educating yourself, doing the work. If it's, performative. And if it's like, Hey, I'm going to say this thing because it's the right thing to say, or it's a trendy Mm. thing to say, then 
I think there should be a fear of criticism because you're not going to know how to answer. <laughs> yes. But if you're actually doing the work, if you're researching, if you're learning, if you're listening, then when the criticism comes, it's actually not that scary because you have truth Amen. to why you're doing what you're doing. Amen. So friends, make sure you grab a copy of the race fives, the race. That is a mouthful. If you say it is. <laughs> Grab a copy of the race wise family. Um, if you interact with children in any capacity and make sure you share this episode with any parents that, you know, Michelle, is there anywhere else that people can find you? Yeah, I have a website. It's my name, michellemireyes.com. Uh, it's actually got a lot of fun freebies on there. We've got race wise family, like coloring pages, including oh, awesome. a, a feelings wheel. Um, cause I think part of just also how we help equip our kids to engage these issues is like developing their emotional intelligence as well. And so like Absolutely. starting to talk about um, their feelings and their feelings in different uh, difficult situations. So we've got a feelings wheel. We've got just other coloring pages. Um, we have a study guide in the works for folks that want to do like a book club um, awesome. as well as a lot of just other um, prayer cards, conversation starters for the dinner table with your kids. It's all on my website, uh, michellemireyes.com for free. Awesome. Michelle, thank you so much. And thank you for, for being here and just to you and Helen, both for using your voices and stepping out. I can imagine that it probably wasn't super easy getting a book deal. <laughs> Was well, it by, by God's grace, uh, by, by God's grace, I think, it, I mean, no, I think on the one hand, for women of color, there's always uh, extra hurdles and extra yes, challenges right. within the publishing industry. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, that's part of our publishing journey too. But I think at the same time, by God's grace, he did open up doors because of the current cultural moment and publishers, particularly Christian publishers, realizing that they needed to speak into these uh, topics. And so we are, we are very grateful that we were able to publish with Waterbrook and that it's come out in the, in the time that it has. Yeah, it was God's message. And he was like, they're going to need it at this time. So we're going to make it happen. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Thanks, friends. Thanks for being here. Make sure you share the episode and we'll see you next time. 